Welcome to Berry Grounds. I'm Justin Brake. The community of Channel Porta Basque in southwestern Newfoundland was changed forever on September 24, 2022, when subtropical storm Fiona, the most intense cyclone ever to hit Canadian shores, made landfall. In the early hours that Saturday morning, houses, sheds, and wharves were washed out to sea, entire cliff faces collapsed, and one woman was swept to her death. Many are still displaced. Extreme weather events are expected to become more frequent as the planet warms, as sea levels rise, and as storms become more intense. Right now, half a billion people living on coastlines around the world are thought to be in immediate danger of such catastrophic events. Freelance journalist Monica Kidd visited Porta Basque on the eve of the one-year anniversary of Fiona and spoke with residents about how the storm continues to affect them. In the following documentary, you'll hear from residents Scott Strickland and Georgina Rose and how NTV chief meteorologist Eddie Shear saved people's lives. But the first voices you'll hear are those of family physician Dave Thomas and Mayor Brian Button. Here's Monica Kidd's documentary, Swept by the Sea. Um, so the whole town is made up of a whole bunch of small communities. Back there was Grand Bay. This is Port of Basque, where the ferry pulls in. And then Channel is the place that had most of the damage from the hurricane. It's a spot that's most exposed to the, to the south wind. So that's the town hall. Water went right up to the door. So it came in through here. All that park went underwater. We had to evacuate people from downtown in loaders to get them across this area here. There's cars coming across through. And a portion of our population was still downtown. I thought from the forecast that we were given that it could probably be bad. We got lots of wind here, so we weren't too worried about that. The storm surge was did seem like a factor, but we we'd been through a lot of storm surges too before. Word around town was always, we've seen this before, we've been through this before, and uh, we were bracing for, you know, possible storm surges and so on and so forth. So we put messages out. But it was the day of, I guess the day before uh, the storm, we started to, you know, ramp that up. Before we were at a friend's house and they were kind of saying, you know, you might want to watch this storm. And... <laughs> I jokingly said, ah, oh, Channel 8 is here. We're going to be fine. We're going to get some great pictures and videos tomorrow. It's going to be wonderful. Don't worry about us. It was my birthday, actually. And uh, so I kind of, we stayed around here. We were here till about 7 o'clock. Uh, just as I was heading out, I, I got a phone call from meteorologist Eddie Shearer, who was finishing up uh, his evening newscast. On Fiona. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Tony and Mike. Yes, uh, certainly is going to be a very impactful storm to the region. Uh, as I've been saying for the last couple of days, uh, this may be not only one of the strongest storms, if not the strongest storm to ever impact Atlantic Canada with respect and, uh, to minimum he had central me pressure. And he, but he was just getting home and he said, you know, I, I kind of felt obligated to give you a call. This, this one seems like it's something that could really line up and especially for you guys. 
it was uh, a hurricane, a category four, actually north of Bermuda, which was, which until that point, I think was never seen before until last year um, that got essentially captured by uh, a, a trough, basically rotating around out of, out of like Ontario and new England. And basically the two systems merged which caused a couple of things. It caused Fiona to slow down and it caused the storm to take a very atypical track where typically they'll go kind of south to north where Fiona kind of turned and almost went like due west and then turned north and went up to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But then as it merged with this other system, the pressure deepened again and deepened significantly. And the barometric pressure measured in Nova Scotia was around 937 millibars, I think. That's the lowest sea level pressure ever recorded uh, in Can- in Canadian history. And if you go into the United States, it, it obliterates that record as well. And we called all of our staff in, our office staff, counselors came. And we started doing things old school. We, we got the roll book out and started looking up people's names in certain streets. We put the maps on the walls and we started looking. We started calling people. We had the staff all all with their cell phones us we started calling people telling them you know they should consider leaving their houses the winds are pretty typical for for a bad storm for us they're probably 140 maybe 150 kilometers uh, it's you lose your breath you can get pushed around pretty good I had, I had trouble when i was out on my deck trying to secure my railing and staying down I'm, I'm a 200 pound man and i had trouble staying in one spot to secure the deck enough uh, it's not a wind you want to open a door or a window in the waves and the wind together it was just, it was an overwhelming roar of noise. And you could hear the rocks on the beach beating around as well, just making a real noise. So then I get a phone call at uh, about 6.30 a.m. A friend of mine uh, wants me to go over and help her, her dad, who's uh, you know, was getting up in age, I guess, need a bit of help get his get his boat up. So we, uh, we get the boat up that morning, it took us about 20 minutes or so, and then the sea was starting to come up. So then about 7 a.m., I guess, I walk back to my house, and then I see my neighbor's house that's out uh, on a point, I guess, probably. It's only about 100 feet as the crow flies from, from my backyard, and his house is actually floating out on the ocean. So when I saw that, it was, it was a major, whoa, this is... This is serious. And when I came back into the house, I had a missed call. And when I called back right away, it was the hospital telling me that um, the storm surge had hit downtown and that there was houses gone, the apartment building had collapsed, and we were declaring code orange. It started from one minute sitting in the living room, watching the rain beat off the back of the patio door, saying, okay, what's this going to be today? To the next thing we know, all I can hear is radio calls. We're going from phone to radios to to whatever. Then and uh, this this house is gone. It's gone. You know, you can hear them just saying the word. It's gone. Uh, so what do you mean? It's gone. It's all gone. Everything. Hoping there's no one in it. What are we in store for? You know, is the water hitting everything? And we're going to be totally just community's going to be totally destroyed. And uh, so that's the feeling that you have because you're in a room. You can't see it. You don't know what's happening. You're just hearing all the calls. And then, so I left my house and I started making phone calls as I was driving to the other docks to get into the hospital to help. 
and when we got in, uh, we got more information about the damage that was downtown, fire and ambulance had gone down, police had gone down. Um, so I went to change, I went to the green, went to the change room to get my greens on. And as I was coming out, the mayor and the town manager and the councilor met me to tell me that the town hall was flooded or the area around town hall was flooded and there was uh, houses gone downtown and they were suspecting people were injured or killed. And uh, so that's when we decided to set up the emergency station at the hospital. So I go into the house and I look out my picture window at the ocean and it's just this massive wave coming towards with another friend of mine on the other side of the cove. His garage is coming straight toward my picture window. So at that point then I just yell out to my wife and I get out of the house and, and she, she replied, yeah, I'm just packing a few things and I'll be out in the car. And I said, no, get the beep out now, right? And uh, when I left, there was uh, the RCMP and, and the fire department were just coming on scene because the house that was in below me, I was just telling you about, it had actually caught fire on the service mass. So the fire department, God love them, they were on their way to extinguish this fire. So I told the RCMP officer to get those guys out of that because uh, that house is not going to be there much longer. This, this is much worse. I don't think any of us really understood the scope of what was about to happen. I thought I'd be looking at dead bodies all day. I thought I'd be filming body bags all day. That's what I thought. Identifying. Pronouncing. Um, yeah. We're in and we're ready. We're downed up. All the rooms are warm. You know, our hypothermia equipment is ready as it could be. Of course, we couldn't get all our nursing staff in because some of them were involved. Uh, but we had extra show up. Just um, They had put out a call on their uh, Facebook page, uh, their union Facebook page, and people just started showing up to help. So we had extra hands, nursing staff everywhere. Um, we didn't, uh, we shortly after that got a call, or we were informed of a death that had taken place, or a presumed death that had taken place. And um, uh, well, then we had a, a lady show up in the back of a Jeep uh, who had had a near drowning event, had got swept out, but got stuck underneath the Jeep as she, as it, as she got swept out to the ocean uh, and sucked into a manhole. And uh, she actually got pulled out by her fam one of her family members and brought to us. Pretty cold, pretty blue, with some seaweed on her, and we, we kept her for the day and kept her alive, and she did okay. When we arrived to the hospital, they were bringing the first victim through the doors, through the emergency doors, the first person that was swept with sea, right? I don't know if this place is going to fill up with, with bodies of people. Like, you're already hearing that one is gone, and uh, they've lost them in the water, and you know if they lost them in the water, that's it. And uh, it's real. So you're in the hospital and you're in action mode mm -hmm. and you've been through emergency situations before, but these are your friends, these are your patients, yeah. these are your neighbors. Yeah, it's really tough. Um, I guess initially I didn't realize how close to some of our friends and that it, that it was. Um, I, I remember the, fir the first time I got that shock. I made sure the eMERGE was okay, I had the docs I needed, everything was ready in case we had people coming in and then I was going to the acute care ward and as I was going to the acute care ward one of my nursing staff came out of the other unit that she worked in with her phone in her hand absolutely white and crying and this it was the moment that she found out that her house was gone, that it had moved and got washed away. Okay, I'm Georgina Rose and I am a 62 year old single woman. <laughs> Oh, survive Fiona. 
and I was getting ready to go bed, and a friend of mine called, Julie Ingham. She lost her roofs too, and she said, Dre, you stay in there. It was about 2011 in nighttime, right? And I said, yeah, I'm staying. I'm on my way to get ready to go to bed. I got to go work in the morning, right? And she said, well, I don't want you to stay. And I said, well, Julie, like, there's nothing going on now. And uh, she said, well, do me a favor. She said, just don't stay there night. And I said, okay, well, like, I suppose. So I called my daughter-in-law. When I got up next morning, I looked at one of us and Savannah, this is not so bad. I said, well, I'm going to, before I go to work, I'm going to leave and run down, just see how it's going. So I went in and I pulled in my driveway and I thought, well, this is not so bad. That was about 10 to 7 in the morning. Terry Ingram pulled up behind me and he said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, I just come down, just have, like, look at it. He said, well, you can't go in that house. You know, he said, I'm not leaving tell you leaves he said I'm not letting you not go in that house I could remember sitting on park lot and in my car and the wind was coming and I had a store house and the store house was close to the water anyway and by the time I got there the store house was fine when I was getting ready to talk to him the store house had moved the wave had rose and come and moved the store house it moved it up to my back bridge just like that that fast right and I left and I went on up work and I say I would not work any more than 15, 20 minutes. My phone, it was beeping. It was like this beep and that beep and another beep. And when I went over and I picked up my phone, it was like, are you okay? Oh my God, are you all right? A video was out a fast and it was a one minute and 11 second video of my ears going and that's how it took you could see the wave coming and just that's how it took I don't know what I found and then I thought well I'll keep working <laughs> I'll keep working you know there's nothing I could do it was gone it was gone I don't know if I went kind of some kind of denial or shock I then all of a sudden it's like okay the house is gone and everything and it was just a minute up pure like I don't know how you could describe it. Dr. Thomas said to me I should go, right? He said, no, Jerry, you can't stay. This is not, you need to go. Uh, and I just said, but like, I just didn't, and you don't know where to go. And it's like, you're homeless. I think that word homeless is uh, something most people can't relate to. I had the clothes on my back. I didn't have and that was a uniform and what I wore out Savannah's that night which was not much. The street was full of debris, the street was full of glass, the street was full of people's pictures, the street was full of people's belongings, it was everywhere. To me it was like what I had saw was only what I turned on the news and watched the news and you saw a storm in New Orleans or you saw, saw the storm in Florida and you're thinking well those poor people I'm thinking right and uh, today I'm I'm looking at the same thing the first time I went to the Lions Center I didn't want to go I didn't want to go and I walked in and I just started to shake and I just and I and I was like and a worker there or a volunteer there see me 
come get me for me so I then I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed and I said I got no underwear <laughs> because it it was declared and uh, it was declared a state emergency and no stores was open and I said I don't want beer but I got no underwear and I was like I was like I was mortified I'm okay. Yeah, well, my name is Scott Strickland. I'm born and raised uh, in Port of Basque. Not currently living there, just living just outside of town now for obvious reasons. But uh, uh, I guess it was two or three days later that we went down and uh, just going out behind the home and everything. Like the whole backyard was gone. There was probably four or five, six feet of other people's homes in our backyards. Everything from personal pictures right down to kitchen sinks, it was all there. It was, you just feel like you got to be doing something, although it was insurmountable just for people to do. But even friends showed up and, and we just started throwing debris around and burning some wood and things like that, just trying to be busy and be helpful. If anything, I, I think it was more peace of mind now looking back at it than anything else because you just feel so helpless. You just can't sit there and and wait, you know. Uh, well, the house itself didn't look too bad. There was obvious water in, in the kitchen area and in the, all of the back windows had been breached. And it was very odd because you could see this very fine sand around all of the windows on the ocean side. But the windows weren't weren't broken or, or, or cracked, anything like that. But all this fine sand was in around it. And then on the second floor, which was odd enough, again, there was seaweed in, in my son's bedroom. It's like, well, where did the seaweed come from? It, it's, it was just, but the windows weren't broken, the windows weren't open. But here's here's seaweed sitting there and, and salt water everywhere, and, you know, things like that. But we did proceed to clean it up and we stayed there for a while. But uh, it was a really putrid smell of gas, gas and oil. And I, I guess it was just from fuel tanks and, and whatever, but you could, it was just a, an overwhelming smell of oil and gas. And, and you could still smell that in the home. And it's, yeah, it just, just wasn't right. It didn't settle right, you know? It wasn't the same. You know, I remember the day after the uh, storm. We did a walk through the community and the sun was beaming. It was beautiful. And, uh, Residents were out, of course, and uh, we went down into our uh, storm sewers that were plugged. The home of one gentleman wasn't hurt or anything. He didn't have any damage, but the storm had, had plugged their storm drains and their sewer drains and stuff. So I just happened to be walking back with one of the gentlemen, and I had my arm on his shoulder, and I said, uh, Jesus, thank God, though. Everybody got out of it. I was so glad to see you last night like at the Lions Club when I came there. Like, thank God you guys weren't down here. And he lost it, lost it with me. And like, he is shouting at me, screaming at me. He's uh, cursing me, like, cause he had went to the Lions Club and there was no, well, excuse my French, there was no goddamn, nowhere to sit. There was nothing, there was like, there was no coffee. There was no nothing. He said, we were just thrown in there. And you know, he's all upset and uh, you know, I'm trying to, you know, ease it down and walk away from it. When I go up, like, there's residents on the street. Our counselors are like, no, that's something else. Like, 
Nails Romney, what do you think you can do about this? Whatever, like that's that's terrible, whatever. And I just I stopped them all and I just said, Look, I don't hold anything against him. He today I said he's just motionally look look around us, look at everything. Two days, three days later I went to visit well, it was probably a little longer than that, you lose track of days, but when the Lions Club then had the, everything up there laid out for people, clothes and and you know, your toothbrush and whatever, and they had all that uh and uh, he happened to be coming there. When he came there, he walked up to me and he was crying. He put his arms around me and he said, I'm really sorry for what I said to you that day. And I knew that. And, you know, there's a lot of emotions going around, right? The days after the Fiona, it was all hands on deck to help. Like, you couldn't do enough. And you physically felt like you couldn't do enough. You mentally felt like you couldn't do enough. So people volunteered at the Lions Club. There was donations from everywhere, from people here, but from right across the province, right across the country, truckloads of stuff. So the schools were all closed, of course, and, and uh, people were off work, so they all went up. People volunteered from all walks of life to unload it and to man it. Uh, people took other people into their houses and still have them there months, months later. Um, people volunteered in the cleanup. Uh, you could volunteer at the town to pick up stuff. People being rescued, pets being rescued, um, stuff that meant a lot to people being found by random people. There were Facebook pages set up with um, various things, pictures washing ashore that people would exchange and, and pass around, or dolls that meant things. And that went on for a very, very long time. There was one conversation that we had in the command center where we were talking about, we're gonna have to get people back in their houses quickly because people don't have electricity, their houses are wet, and we're gonna have damage. And then, it started to sink in. They're not getting in tomorrow. They're not getting in the next day. This is going to be weeks, and this is going to drag on. It definitely has felt like that. Like the weeks afterwards, the acute devastation. I mean, just the the sorrow and the sadness that was around town. And I can remember uh, one of our staff who volunteers as a fireman breaking down on our walk um, because he was just completely overwhelmed. And then one of the other people mentioned that everyone felt the same way about survivor's guilt. Most of us didn't lose anything, but we felt guilty that we couldn't do more to, to help. I wouldn't dare drive around town to look at the seat of damage. Um, I didn't go down to the area that had houses washed away for at least four or five months, I would say. It was probably midwinter before I went down because there was debris everywhere. People had lost so much, I didn't feel it was respectful to drive around and look. So when I finally did, I was, uh, it was really shocking months later. And people say, well, you know, Joy, you got your life, and you got your dog, and you got, and you got main things. Like, no, you know, you didn't, somebody lost their life, so you did, you had all that. And you got your memories, uh, but like, you know, it's just there. It's everything you had in life, and yes, it's things, and yes, it's things, and things can be replaced, like fridges, stoves, all that stuff. You, you, you can get it all back. But you think about that little drawing or a card that your sister left, all kinds of things for your grandkids, from your own kids. I could remember when I cleaned up mom's and dad's house, my daughter, and made mom a little card. It says, I love you, me, and the hearts and stuff like that. And uh, my mother kept that on her tree. I used to look at it every Christmas and keep it. I think, and much it used me to, all right?
when they came to take down what was left of your house. Yeah. When when was that? October fifth. Yep. October fifth. And that was a bad day. Did you go there? Yep. I got a I got a video of it. I watched it go down. Why was it important for you to be there? Because it was fun. Because there was no going back from that. There was no hope. When it went down there, really, it wouldn't fit to walk into. It was not fit. It smelled so bad. Good morning, everybody. NTV Chief Meteorologist Eddie Shearer here. Fiona is still a Category 3 hurricane, now rocketing north at 40 kilometers per hour. Sights are still set on Atlantic Canada. As we take a look at the forecast track, we can see the storm moving northward, making landfall early tomorrow morning as a powerful extratropical cyclone with wind speed still maxing out around 150, 160 kilometers per hour. During the day tomorrow, the storm... So, the million dollar question, why did you pick up the phone and call Brian Button? Um... I was concerned for Southern Newfoundland and Port of Basque in general before I called Brian, just because like there, there were environment Canada did issue storm surge warnings, but I didn't think the language was particularly specific or strong enough for what was going to transpire. And you also have to understand that people in Newfoundland are used to dealing with, for lack of a better term, shitty stormy weather. And when we get systems like this, they don't happen all the time, but people will think, oh, it's not going to be as bad as they say. And sometimes they're right, but this was not one of those instances. This was very obvious. It was going to be very, very strong for whatever area that it impacted. And so in the days leading up, we uh, decided to send a couple of crews down to Port Basque to cover the storm. Um, and I called one of our reporters. And I said, Don, did you speak to, you know, to the mayor of Port Basque? And I didn't know Brian at that point. He said, yeah. And I said, you know, what are their thoughts? He's like, oh, well, you know, they're going to do a wait and see and see what happens tomorrow morning. And they'll kind of like decide what they're going to do at that point. And I was like, okay, I think that's a, that's a mistake. And uh, I went to my general manager at work and I said, listen, I'm thinking of calling the mayor of Port Basque to basically give him my two cents uh, on what I think is going to happen. And, uh, you know. I don't know, you know, if that's appropriate or not. And he's like, basically go for it. Because I, I didn't know Brian. I didn't know how he was going to take it. And here I am, like, you know, weatherman on TV calling him and telling him basically how I think he should be doing his job. And so I did, I called Brian and I was like, you know, I think he was out to supper with his wife. I think it was his birthday. I said, with all due respect, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. I said, I think what I'm looking at right now, the storm has some X factor to it. We've never seen a storm like this. I think the water is going to be exceptionally high. And if you wait too long, you're going to be dealing with high water and hurricane force winds, and you may not be able to get people out from those low-lying areas in your community. The big driver that I had in, in making that call was um, the year prior, we had a hurricane come through Hurricane Larry. And Larry was a fast mover. Didn't think a whole lot of it, you know, had some rain, had some wind, 
But there was a storm surge with that in Placentia Bay that was not well forecast, not well predicted, and nobody knew it happened until like the next day. And people could have died then. And they luckily nobody did. Um, and you know, what was on my mind was like, if I can make a call to Brian, essentially I didn't care how it was received, but if I can get that off my chest, I'll be able to rest knowing I did at least make some effort to communicate. And if I didn't make the phone call and I woke up the next morning and I had found out uh, people had perished, I would have had a very, very hard time kind of coping with that. This is emotional for you, isn't it? I mean, it is. You know, I've seen the damage and I've, I've met the people who uh, <clears throat> had, you know, their, their homes taken, their property taken. You know, unfortunately, one person did lose their life. Like there are still people down in Port of Basque you know, trying to figure out what they're going to do with their homes, when they're getting money to build a new home, where they're going to build a new home. And this is, you know, a year after, but even in the weeks after, you know, like people who are displaced, where do they go? What do they eat? Where do they live? Like, wh wh what are they going to do for clothing? Like these, these weather events, they have impacts that last beyond the scope of the event itself. And it's the, the spotlight moves away and, and these, you know, now these people are left to deal with, with it on their own. Uh, you know, what's going to happen if, if sea levels keep rising and, and, these storms keep getting, they're obviously getting more severe. But if, if you don't get people out of these areas and all around Newfoundland are going to be at danger, if you're right on that coastline and, and you know, you're 10, 15, 20 feet from the high water mark, you're going to be in danger in any kind of severe event like that. And and that morning, just, just as a, a little bit more of a perspective on it, I guess, the winds weren't really that bad. The waves weren't powerful and crashing and you keep thinking, oh, it's a hurricane. So you got this wind you can't stand up in and the waves are just bombarding you. It wasn't like that. It was powerful. Yes, but it just came in. It just kept just like you're filling up a bathtub. It just keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. It just lifts things up. It didn't crash things apart. It lifted them up and took them. But the thing about Fiona is like what's not talked about either is that there was a storm surge from the Avalon Peninsula to Port of Basque, around the corner, around like into the Gulf, and all the way up into the lower North Shore of Quebec. So the water, like the surge was tremendous. And then you start to go to really delve into it. And we don't have any early warning systems to detect like when we're having these events right now. What is it going to take to get the government to invest in some of these systems to at least give you an idea of where some of the stuff is happening? Like Newfoundland is very vulnerable to a lot of this stuff in some areas. Do they and exist elsewhere? In the United States, they do. Yeah, like yeah, you know, like there are lots of tide gauges in the states. Like like when they when these hurricanes come through, they'll deploy these temporary buoys in the areas where they think there's going to be surge, so you can see it coming. Like if you're looking for Florida, for instance, you can go to a map and you can say, and the map will show you at one foot surge, here's where the water comes in. At three feet, at five feet, at seven feet, at ten feet, and you can see where the water inundation is. So you can get down almost at a neighborhood level and say, this neighborhood is the one where the water is going to be. This is our mandatory evacuation zone. If you're back here, it may or may not be, depending on what the situation is. So we don't have any idea like what X amount of surge is going to do to X amount of places other than saying like, 
watch out for the water coming up. Communicating where the danger is to people in the danger zone needs to improve and needs to improve quickly. See the houses are really tight together. It's almost, I don't know if you've been to Cape Bonavista, but it's similar to Cape Bonavista where the houses are tight together. And I guess it's a sort of a similar environment as well. Right? You get a lot of wind here, of course. And uh, this is the closest area to the, what their jobs would have been back then, the fishing and the stages and stuff. So just the amount of stages and wharves and motors and side-by-sides and skidoos that ended up in the water was unreal. Harbor cleanup. This volunteer group came in and did so, so much work. And many of the people who lived here have actually sold and got out or taken the opportunity to move away. Gone. Gone. Condemned. My dream when I was, was about to retire was that I would sell my home that I had and find a little tiny home closer to the lighthouse and spend my days there and uh, you know have a rowboat go out to the to the lighthouse and do a little bit of fishing and that kind of stuff but uh, I can't see people wanting to stay down there every day I think you're reminded of it and the area is still scarred. It still looks like houses were tore down. It looks like raw land that has been beat up. We're still probably years away from forgetting Fiona. Are you okay? Yeah. I, I like my town. I love my town. And, and the people here are my friends and my patients become my friends. And it means a lot when they get hurt. We can get stronger. Swept by the Sea was researched, reported, and produced by Monica Kidd. When we come back, what is a storm surge and how do we monitor them? How does our warning system work? And why was it up to NTV meteorologist Eddie Shear to try and get people out of harm's way? Stay where you're too. As we heard Portabasque Mayor Brian Button tell Monica Kidd, when Fiona made landfall one year ago, people in the community thought it was going to be a storm surge like ones they'd seen before. It wasn't until NTV Chief Meteorologist Eddie Shear called Button the evening before that the mayor and council and town staff started calling people and telling them to consider leaving their houses. The thing is, those advisories usually come from government. And in fact, one did, the afternoon before Fiona hit. Environment Canada issued a hurricane warning that spanned from Gros Morne to Francois on the south coast. And the Canadian Hurricane Centre issued a storm surge warning. Canadian Hurricane Centre warning preparedness meteorologist Bob Robichaud 
said the waves caused by Hurricane Fiona would be quote-unquote very significant, and that in Newfoundland and Labrador, the island's southwest coast would be hit the hardest. But as we heard, Eddie Shear didn't think the urgency of the situation had been really conveyed to the people of Porta Basque. While Fiona was a record-breaking storm, the frequency, intensity, and unpredictability of extreme weather events is on the rise due largely to the extraction and burning of fossil fuels. So, have we learned our lesson yet? Are we prepared for more storm surges that could claim lives, and can people be assured that they'll get advance warning? That's the first question I put to Bob Robichaud, the same Canadian Hurricane Centre meteorologist who was watching Fiona and helping issue warnings to southwestern Newfoundland. The first thing to do is 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 kind of define what a storm surge is. Essentially, whenever you have an area of low pressure, you tend to have a buildup of water ahead of where the storm is going. So the wind from the storm actually pushes the water. Also, the fact that there is low pressure in the center of the storm causes the water to rise uh, towards uh, uh, the center of the storm. So that creates kind of a bulge of water, which which on a very, very large scale, it's, it's very small. But as soon as that storm intersects land, then you'll have a, a corresponding rise in water level at the coast. So that specifically is storm surge. There, there are multiple components to water level. Obviously, the tide is a big one that we can easily predict. We know what the tides are going to be. You have the storm surge component that I just explained. Also, when you have waves, obviously, the breaking action of the waves causes damage, but it also causes a relative rise in water level at the coast as well. So uh, it's something we call wave setup. So basically, near the coastline, you'll see the storm surge, you'll see the waves set up, and then you have the waves on top of that that actually destroy things. We've actually had uh, a storm surge warning program here in Atlantic Canada for decades. And whenever we see the potential for a storm surge, we would issue a storm surge warning. So that's evolved over time. It took a few years to evolve to a point where we were issuing warnings. In the early 2000s, what we actually had developed with Dalhousie University was a, a model that would actually take the data from the atmospheric model, the weather model, and take that data, for especially for pressure and wind, and run that to come up with what we should expect for storm surge at the coast. That model specifically addresses the storm surge component of it. It doesn't address the wave contribution to the overall water level, just the storm surge part. So what we do is we have to look at the whole storm, look at what the tides will be, look at what our storm surge model is saying, and also figure out what kind of waves will be approaching the coast to come up with an overall risk uh, assessment for different parts of the coast. So when we see that happening, 
what we do is we'll issue a storm surge warning for our different forecast areas along the coast, and we'll specify the time, we'll specify the location, we'll specify sometimes the height of the water that's expected, and then we'll add statements like uh, pounding surf will exacerbate the, the situation and that sort of thing. So really, all that plays into how we develop warnings. And anytime we expect something like that, we would have uh, a storm surge warning. So that's the warning that was issued to Port Basque in that area um, a year yes. ago. Yeah. How does that system differ to your knowledge? Are you familiar with the American system? Like it sounds like they might have a bit more advanced uh, technology in terms of being able to predict specifically what the exact kind of height is going to be? Well, it is a different system, that's for sure. They've developed their own storm surge model, and they use them primarily for hurricanes. Our storm surge warning program was developed as a result, really, of a winter storm that occurred back in 1976. So that program evolved from that particular storm, which we also use for tropical systems as well. One of the the factors here where we end up with some coastal issues, not just for, for tropical systems, but for winter storms as well, it is exactly the, the wave component of the water level. If we look at the storm surge that we had during Fiona for the Port of Basque area, it was only estimated to be about a meter. It was not that extreme, really. But what made it extreme is we had an area of 18 meter significant wave heights with peak wave heights around 30 meters crashing onto the shoreline. So that, first of all, contributed to the overall water level, again, which is not covered in the uh, storm surge model. The, the contribution of uh, water level from the waves is not part of that storm surge model. So that's where things become a little bit uh, trickier um, here than in the U.S. because in the U.S. with these types of tropical systems, they simply don't get the waves that we get here. Because a lot of these storms are accelerating as they approach, that small area within the storm where the winds are really, really strong stay in harmony with the waves. That allows these waves to grow to astronomical heights. Like a hundred foot waves are something that we typically see with a strong accelerating storm. A lot of the work that's been done to look into that wave theory has been done here in Atlantic Canada. It's a phenomenon called trap-fetched waves. The fetch is the area that the storm is producing waves. So that area gets trapped within the storm and moves in harmony with the storm. These storms move very slowly when they're in the tropics. So they create waves. <clears throat> the waves move out ahead of the storm. Uh, but as the storm accelerates, there's always an area that stays in harmony with the storm, allowing these things to grow to really high heights, which we theorized back in the 90s. But it wasn't until there was a, a cruise ship, it was just off the coast of the Avalon Peninsula, on its way to New York City, encountered waves of 95 feet. 
So you can imagine that would not have been a very pleasant cruise to be on. Uh, but that's a very small area within the storm where those waves are allowed to build and build and build. Uh, so they don't get the waves in the U.S. that we do here. Even Dorian from 2019, Dorian peaked at a very strong Category 5 hurricane as it was hitting the Bahamas. It, it had nowhere near the wave heights that it had when it approached uh, Atlantic Canada. We had waves of 31 meters with Dorian uh, just off the coast of Nova Scotia. So that's that wave component that complicates things where the U.S. has their storm surge model and they can predict how high the water is going to get based on the storm surge, but they don't have that wave component that's added to the risk for coastal areas and infrastructure. The other thing that they have in the U.S., and this is what we are kind of working on now, is we could do a pretty good job at predicting the risk of storm surge and wave damage. But to get to that granular area of getting down to the neighborhood level, we also need what we call a digital elevation model. And that is very, very precise data on the height of the land areas around the coast. We can do a pretty good job at predicting the water levels, but if we don't know where that intersects and how that intersects with the coastline without that data, we won't be able to go to that neighborhood level. A lot of that data is collected by, say, municipalities and the provinces to determine uh, all kinds of different things along their coastline. So what we're doing now, there's a multi-year project to work with the provinces, work with the municipalities to leverage that data so we can bring that into our system so we will be able to get more granular in terms of what neighborhoods would be at risk and what areas would not be at, uh, at risk. That project is actually nearing its completion right now. And... Uh, folks should be able to see some information about that in the coming months or within a year or so. What folks will actually see is an area depicting low risk, moderate risk, high risk, and extreme risk of coastal flooding for different areas. So that, again, that's called the Predicting and Alerting for Coastal Flooding Project. It, it's a national project. So the storm surge warning program that we developed here back in the 80s and, and refined into the 90s and 2000s, we're leveraging a lot of the work that was done there because we've had a, a storm surge warning program here on the East Coast, like I say, since the late 70s, early 80s. And that has not existed anywhere else, not on the Great Lakes, not in the north, and not even on the west coast. So the, this new uh, prediction and alerting for coastal flooding project is being applied to all coastal areas of Canada. You don't know how far along the provinces are in providing that info? Um, I know... The province who's furthest along is Prince Edward Island because they, they've done a lot of that LIDAR mapping uh, well before the project started. Some provinces don't necessarily have that data yet. Uh, I, I have a bit more knowledge about Atlantic Canada than I do uh, out west mm -hmm. in, in northern areas, but uh, it, it is coming along and it's actually you know, getting to the end of the project. What will happen there is 
things like coastal infrastructure have been identified based on those digital elevation maps. So say we have a hospital in an area that potentially could get some uh, water from the sea, you know, uh, infiltrating that general area. So we would have that in our database as a level one or level two flood risk. So when our models detect that the waves are going to reach a certain level that it will intersect that piece of infrastructure, there will be like a trigger, something that gets triggered to the forecaster who can look at the model, assess its validity and say, yeah, this is this is close or yeah, they will get flooded. We're going to issue a warning for that particular area so that emergency managers, the local people know that we're expecting a level two that we need to do something at the hospital because there will be water uh, there. So that's the kind of, of idea around this whole project. So would if that was if that project was in full force, um, you know, a year ago, would it have provided any different data or projections in terms of what the impacts on Port Basque might have been? If we had that LIDAR data, we probably could have given a little bit better, um, more detailed information. But the thing to remember there is that the storm surge was only a meter, and then the it was really the waves that caused all the issues there, which still is not going to be necessarily predicted within the very, you know, we're not going to be able to say that, okay, this house is going to be underwater or or destroyed or whatever, or flooded, and then this house won't because there's so much variability to the waves and it's the waves that caused the big problem as opposed to the actual surge, which was a contributing factor, there's no doubt. But if it was just storm surge alone, Port Basque has seen one meter storm surges before and not had those impacts. So even with the new program in place, you mentioned that there would be uh, a scale of low, medium, high, and extreme. So it's still possible that a community or a neighborhood could be identified as medium or high, but then end up being, when it hits, a case where it would be extreme because the waves were not able to be predicted. Yeah, and and we again we would incorporate that into uh, into the forecast as well. So even though the model is not picking up on that extra component, a lot of the work done in the last few years is to take the storm surge model data and then superimpose the wave data on it as well. So then you do get kind of a, a better idea of what the water level will be because of those two contributions. But again, it all depends on, like when we're looking at waves crashing on shore, there are a multiple uh, sizes of waves within that whole wave area. What we call the significant wave height, which is the average height of the top third of the waves in that whole wave group, uh, average height was 18 meters. Within that group, there were waves as high as 30 meters. So it's always, when you're talking about wave theory and this sort of thing, getting to that granularity of this house, this street is going to be impacted and not, 
we're probably not going to get there because of the, the scales of what we're talking here. But we certainly will be able to provide a much better idea once that project is completed, and then we could add more detail to, to the predictions. We reached out to the Provincial Department of Justice and Public Safety to ask about that coastal data that would be used in Environment and Climate Change Canada's Predicting and Alerting for Coastal Flooding project. A statement from the department didn't address that project specifically, but said the province is working on its own web-based coastal flood hazard mapping system that it says will be able to, quote, pull the predicted tide and surge data from Environment and Climate Change Canada and convert it to a vertical datum so that it can be related to the LIDAR-based coastal flood maps, end quote. This is a system already used in other Atlantic provinces. The department also recently announced a new public information tool that will be used during emergency situations, not just potential storm surges or flooding. It's a web page that will serve as a multi-step public alerting system that will enhance communication to the public in advance and during emergency events. The statement goes on to say that if a major emergency is deemed imminent, the new emergency preparedness webpage will be activated and be connected to the government's website. We want people to know that once this website is activated, the threat of extreme weather is real and adequate safety precautions should be taken immediately. The emergency information webpage will become a one-stop shop for information, providing timely and accurate information to the public before and during life-threatening weather events. That's it for this episode of Berry Grounds. Thank you to Monica Kidd for her documentary, Swept by the Sea. Monica is an award-winning journalist who formerly worked for CBC Radio in Newfoundland and Labrador, and is currently freelancing while working as a family doctor in Calgary. She's the author of several books of poetry, fiction, and nonfiction, and has just begun work on a new book about how coastal erosion is affecting human health around the world. You can find more of her work at monicakid.ca. monicakidd.ca. The voices you heard in the documentary were Dr. Dave Thomas, Portabasque Mayor Brian Button, residents Scott Strickland and Georgina Rose, and NTV Chief Meteorologist Eddie Shear. Music from Swept by the Sea was from the Creative Commons, Residuum by Silver Maple, Who's There by Peter Sandberg, Twire by Christopher Gorman, and Sentient by Gavin Luke. And for Berry Grounds, the wonders of science, courtesy of Silverman Sound. Berry Grounds is part of the Harbinger Media Network, it's written, produced, and hosted by me, Justin Brake. If you like what we do and want to support more episodes on the climate crisis and other important issues, visit theindependent.ca where you can join hundreds of people from Newfoundland and Labrador who are supporting local independent journalism with monthly donations. We couldn't do this without their support. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, and that'll help us reach more people. Until next time. Until next time.